Thanks for taking the time to listen to these recordings of our Sunday morning sermons. The Door Church is one church in two locations on mission to see lives restored with the gospel for God's glory, and we'd love to have you join us. To learn more about our gatherings in Louisville and Argyle, Texas, visit our website at thedoorchurch.net. Now, let's worship God by opening His Word. Man, just so thankful you're here with us this morning. As Reagan said at the end of announcements, we're going to continue our walk in Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, I hope you have it. If you don't have one, there should be one under the seat in front of you. We are going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9 this morning. The title of the sermon is Under Authority by God's Grace. Under Authority by God's Grace in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. I'll begin reading in verse 1. God's word says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. It's the word of God. It's where we'll be today. If you'll bow your heads and pray with me, and we'll continue to dig in. Father God, we, we thank you today for your incredible grace grace that, that we have seen throughout the book of Ephesians and, and grace that, that some of us have experienced personally and grace that we all so desperately need today. We, we thank you today that even though uh, we had a debt so big we could not pay, you paid it for us. God, for those who believe we, we stand today covered, we stand today redeemed, purchased, and what freedom and joy we have knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we study your word today as liberated people, free people, people who have been removed from the curse, people who have had their judgment placed on Jesus and have now just become recipients of endless mercy and grace. We, we can never thank you enough, and we want our lives to be an overflow of worship because of what you've done for us. And so, God, I pray you would help us this morning learn how to do that in every one of our lives, every day of our lives, at our jobs and our relationships as, as parents, as children, and, and just our relationships in general, God. You've, you've placed us in, in various areas of life with great reason and purpose. God, I pray you would illuminate those to us this morning and that we would be overwhelmed by your love through Christ. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to do something a little bit different here. We're going to start at the end of the verses we read and kind of work our way backwards. So we're going to start in those verses 5 through nine, and as I was reading this area on bond servants and masters, I was, I was thinking about like, it's a good discussion starter question, like what's your least favorite job you've ever had, right? Some of us have had many jobs, some of us maybe not a lot of jobs, but what's your least favorite job you've ever had? And as I was thinking about it, I'm super thankful. I, I don't have like a, a certain job that was just like, that was terrible. But if I had to pick my least favorite job I've had, it was when for a couple years I was in uh, pest control uh, business, and, and that was an interesting season of life. 
Um, I thought it was going to be awesome and amazing. And there's aspects of it that were, but it was also pretty hard um, and different. And so I don't know what new heavens, new earth is going to be like. Only God knows that. But I can assure you up until at least that point, you ain't getting rid of all the bugs and rodents in this world, no matter how hard you try. They're resilient and there are way too many of them and we will never succeed there. But pest control guys, man, you got my respect. Pest control ladies, you got my respect. Um, at this season of life, I was in commercial landscaping, and so, and so I was a little bit excited of, to do some things where I wasn't just outside all day. And so, no lie, my first day on the job, I've got my canister, I've got my, my spray nozzle, I'm, I'm, man, I'm wearing a collared shirt, hat, and I, I get, we did apartment complexes. So I get to my first apartment complex, you know, knock on the door, pest control, and, and this lady answers the door, and I was like, I heard that you, you know, you've seen a few roaches in your apartment. She's like, oh yes, yes, let me show you. We've seen a couple in the kitchen, so I'm walking in just super pumped about this new, this new venture. And we get to the kitchen. She's like, we've seen a, a few inside the, the pantry. And, and no lie, she opens her, her pantry door and like the, the, the inside of the pantry door is moving. Like it's, like it's like a fluid movement of waves of roaches all up inside the, the pantry wall. And so my internal reaction is to be like, I mean, just whoa, I mean, just freak out. I can't do that though. I'm, I'm the professional pest control guy that should be in control of the situation so inside I am losing it and on the outside I'm looking at these not kidding hundreds of roaches and going oh okay yeah there seems to be a little activity uh, in your in your pantry um, just give me a few minutes and I'll take care of the problem and I'll be out of your way and she's like okay thank you so much and I'm like oh my god and I'm quickly wishing that my little spray nozzle was a super soaker so that I could just like, I mean, just hose down this entire kitchen. Part of me was like, dude, maybe we should just take a match to this. Like just <laughs> throw it and man, let's find you a new apartment because this is trouble. And it was, a, uh, it was an interesting job. It, it made me respect uh, that realm. It, it, uh, it was good for me. It made me realize, man, how thankful I am for, for various things in life. Like, um, man, you go in some apartments and, and the floors would be covered in like human and animal uh, stool and just the way people live and you go to some apartments and there'd be way more people living there than, than should be like you know 20 plus people kids sleeping on the floors kids with like I'm not like bite marks on their eyelids because roaches at night are looking for moisture and and I would start to bring people from my young marrieds class guys with me just because like I, I it made me praise God for the amazing things that I had in my life that I do not deserve um it made me want to have like an incinerator to burn my clothes when I got home at the end of the day because I didn't I just it was it was, it was an interesting season of life. And so that was, that's my least favorite job I've ever had, although I'm thankful for it because God used it, I know, in, in different ways in my heart. And I really do appreciate pest control people to this day. But I'm sure everyone can think of something, some vocation season of life that you had, uh, maybe a less than desirable job. Maybe, maybe you're in that season right now. Maybe you're like, my current job is my least favorite job I've ever had. But by God's grace... We understand that work is a gift. Any work is a gift. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not thorns and thistles that he tells us about in Genesis, but it is a gift. We are made in the image of God. Therefore, God is a worker, and we are workers as well. We understand that this is how God provides for us in so many ways, and we should be thankful for our jobs. However, we also know that there are some bad jobs. So a question we have this morning is, how can you find satisfaction and fulfillment in your job? either as a paid or an unpaid worker, because I'm sure many here are either stay-at-home parents, you're a student, you're a volunteer, and, 
and you work extremely hard, you just don't get paid for it, but you should be thankful for that work and, and work diligently at it. So how can you do your work with any sense of pleasure and fulfillment? And so many of you might say, well, the only fulfillment I get is that they pay me. And, and maybe that's part of your answer, but there's an even higher motivation that we see today. The way that you, that I find fulfillment in our jobs, whether it's an awful job or a wonderful job, is you understand as a Christian that Jesus is your boss. Jesus is the boss above every boss. He is the boss behind every boss. And he is reigning and ruling and he is the king. If Jesus is your boss, that changes the way you view your work. Jesus is the Lord over everything, and that should affect the way we do everything. There should be no separation between secular work and spiritual work. There's just work. And the question is, to whom do you do it? For whose glory are you laboring? Everything is under the domain of Christ, so we are to bring all of our business under the lordship of Christ, all of our homemaking under the lordship of Christ, all of our classwork under the lordship of Christ, all of our preaching under the lordship of Christ. Whatever you and I do as a Christian, we are to do it as a servant of Christ to the glory of God. Now, before we really dive into the application in this section of scripture, we first need to talk about slavery, slavery briefly. We could, we could immediately just jump into the application of employers and employees, which is an appropriate way to apply this text, but I don't think we should just skip over uh, what perhaps many are thinking about as we read this text, you hear the word slavery and, and a lot of our minds instantly go to 18th century slavery. Um, you know, we don't ever want to not address an elephant in the room. We're a church that wants to address all the elephants in the room and say what God says about everything and be very clear and, not, and eliminate any hurdles that could possibly be there so that the Holy Spirit can move in only ways uh, that he can. So in this passage... Paul is talking about ancient house codes. This is first century, okay? He's talking about ancient house codes. He goes from husbands and wives that we talked about last week, children and parents, which we'll get to in a minute, to slaves and masters. He's, he's teaching about how Christians are to live their lives in their houses. He talks about reciprocal relationships. So wives have a responsibility to their husbands, husbands to their wives, children have a responsibility to their parents, parents to their children, slaves to masters, masters to slaves. He's, he's not writing a letter on rights, he's writing a letter on responsibilities. And many do think of 18th century slave trade when we read the word slavery, and it's understandable why, but this is different. First century slavery was not based on race. All races had bond servants. First century slavery was not a lifetime of slavery. Many became free around the age of 30 after acquiring enough wages and, and making a life for themselves. First century slavery, many desired to be a bondservant because it provided them with, with finances, ways to make a living. It, it had provisions for their life. It was much more like what we look as a boss and employee today. Some first century slavery was undoubtedly brutal because people are sadly people, all of us are, but a lot of it wasn't. We know as Christians that, that slavery is not good. So when Paul talks about it here, you can be like, man, is Paul pro-slavery? Like, no, Paul, Paul is not pro-sinful slavery. We know as Christians that one of the pictures of the gospel is freedom from slavery. We have been freed, and so we promote freedom. Paul's teaching definitely undermines slavery. Even in this letter, we see pointers. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Be an imitator of God. Well, who is God and what does he do? He is a father to the fatherless. He's a protector of the vulnerable. He's a God of justice and mercy. He's a God who was on the side of the oppressed. 
So when it says imitate God, I think we can draw a very legitimate application to fight for the freedoms of all people, to be a people who are merciful and just. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-10 through 10 will be up on the screen. God's word says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul's talking about sinners and, and all these things that we can fall victim to as sinners, and every one of us in here on some level is, is given into these sins on some level. And, and part of this, as you were reading it, talks about enslavers, human trafficking. Man, he calls slavery ungodly. So I want you to hear that and that we are talking about something different today in this text, okay? So let's move on. So a big idea here for masters and slaves, bosses, employees, is he tells the slaves to serve as if you're serving Christ. Work in such a way that is unto Christ. And then he tells masters that you're to treat your servants, your employees, as you were treating Christ. So for slaves, employees, you notice something. In every verse, five through nine, Christ our Lord is mentioned or alluded to. That The primary motivation is always Jesus Christ. That's the big picture, Jesus. To those who are slaves or masters, we are all ultimately under Jesus Christ, every single one of us. The overarching motive changes everything. They were to work respectfully with fear and trembling, not fear of like being scared, but fear of just awe and respect. To think about Jesus as your boss, you'd take your job much more seriously, wouldn't you? Why do you think about it differently at work? If instead of just seeing that person as your boss, if, if you were reminded constantly every day that, you know, Jesus is my king, Jesus is my boss, and he's put this person in my life, you would have a great sense of respect and honor. He tells them not just to work respectfully, but also wholeheartedly, work with a sincere heart. He says in verse 6, not as people pleasers, but doing the will of God from the heart. If Jesus is our boss, we do our work wholeheartedly and respectfully, because Jesus knows all and sees all. He says, don't be lazy, don't be lying, don't be threatening. And he addresses both master and slave, boss and employee, both of them with this doctrine. Then in verse 8, God's word says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. He says, do your work expectantly. We, we glorify Christ by understanding that we will be rewarded. Not one single act of obedience done unto Christ ever goes unnoticed. Everything we do is noticed, and it's noticed by the only one who ultimately matters, God. This is how Jesus serves and how Jesus leads. He tells them to avoid hostility. He says, stop your threatening, being bullies, being aggressive. And he tells them to live with a Christ-centered accountability. Servants, work unto Christ. Masters, treat your servants as you would treat Christ. We should do our work through Christ, like Christ, and for Christ. In Ephesians, God has told us in Christ we have the Spirit of God living inside of us as Christians so we're not powerless when we go to work. And it's just as what Steve was saying earlier. Like, we can believe this, but do we trust this? That we have the Spirit of God in us. Do you trust that? Because if you do, you have the power to go to work and reflect this. 
God tells us we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, including going to work, whether you're an employee or an employer. He is with us always. Wherever you're working, he's with you. So maybe someone's sitting here today, we all have different vocations, someone's like, I'm just a school teacher. Exactly. How much more do you need the Spirit of God to love those kids? One of the beautiful fruits of the Spirit is love, and there's many other amazing fruits of the Spirit that God will produce in us and through us by the power of the Spirit. Maybe you say, I'm just a factory worker. Exactly. It's the Spirit of God that gives you joy in the midst of the mundane. Maybe you say, I'm just a bus driver. Exactly. You need the Spirit of God to give you peace. Anyone who's ever ridden on a bus knows that they need peace. I'm just a stay-at-home parent. Exactly. What a job you have. It's the Spirit who gives you patience so that you don't end up in jail. <laughs> Say, I'm, I'm just a waitress. Exactly. The Spirit gives you kindness to deal with rude customers. I'm a politician. Exactly. Well, there may not be any hope for you as a politician. And I'm just kidding. I'm totally just kidding. Some of you, Matt, might be too soon. But how incredible would it be for a politician to be living through, for, and like Christ? That'd be amazing. And there are politicians like that. But if there were more and more, it would be incredible. Maybe you say, I'm a soldier. Exactly. The Spirit can give you, and if you have a spouse, your spouse, faithfulness while you are on tour for different lengths of time. I'm just a coach. Exactly. Spirit of God gives you gentleness. I'm, a, I'm in the world of business. Exactly. Spirit of God can give you self-control. And if you know Scott Austin, he's our off-duty police officer. Afterwards, he was like, hey, what about me, man? I'm a police officer. I was like, man, you need it all. You need, you need all that spirit in, inside of you, man, to reflect this goodness to, to the world around you. And we all do. We all do, no matter what you do. Do you see your need for God in the workplace? Do you ask God for help? Do you ask God for wisdom? As Christians, we know we're not saved by our works, but we're saved by Jesus' work. But we also know that he has saved us to do good works. If you're a boss, Jesus is your model. If you're under a boss, Jesus is your model. The one who, though he was the ultimate master, became the ultimate servant, the one who came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, who came to give us what we could not earn for ourselves, who came to make us what we could not make ourselves, sons and daughters to God. That's what's most important for slaves and masters, for employees and employers. Jesus is what matters most. So of course, that's what matters most for parents and children as we look at verses one through four. If we've been changed by the gospel, the way we relate to our families will change. Paul says, one of the places we make the gospel known and present and one of the ways we should see transformation is in our families. Those who have been changed by the gospel should seek to love, nurture, and disciple their children. This isn't a text simply saying to be a better parent or be a better kid. It's, it's learning to understand the, the grace of God and the gospel and how these rich, wonderful truths overflow into our families because that's what the gospel changes. It changes our, our personal identity. It, it makes us into new husbands, wives, bosses, employees, moms, dads, and children. 
We see several truths here, so we're going to look at just four different truths in these four verses. The first truth is that we should value and care for children. Paul is directly addressing children. Children matter. They are not an afterthought. They are not lesser than. They are created by God. As equal of any of us of value and worth, we should treat them as such. Children are from God. It's from God that parents receive their children, and it's to God that they should lead them. And they should all really come with a warning sticker that says, like, yours to steward for a limited time. Because any of our older parents in here today know that somehow you go from dropping your children off for their first day of preschool to the next day you're helping them move into their first home. And the days are long, but the years fly by, and it happens so, so fast. And we have a really urgent responsibility to them, don't we? Let's value one another's children. We want these truths that we're teaching to be embedded in the hearts and souls of all of our children at TDC. Second truth we see, we need to set a Christ-centered example for our children. Children are going to learn a lot about what we have already covered in Ephesians. Speaking the truth, encouraging one another, giving generously, working hard for the glory of God, and they're going to learn that from you. If you live in awe of God's grace, that will influence them. They'll learn worship from you, what it means to have a relationship with God from you, how to pray from you, and their view of the church from you. They're also learning obedience and submission from their parents. As we obey God and submit to God, they're learning how to obey and submit to their parents. Now we will fail as parents, amen? We will fail miserably as parents. Many of us have failed already this morning as parents to our children. Setting an example for your kids doesn't mean you're perfect. A big part of setting a biblical example as a parent is a life of repentance Telling them that there's only one who was and is a perfect parent. Point to the only one who never disobeyed their parent. That's a huge part of parenting as well. You're teaching them that in our disobedience and in their disobedience, there was one who was never disobedient. That Jesus Christ came and lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death that we should have died. He rose on our behalf, and in our failure, we're pointing them to Jesus the same way we look to Jesus as parents for our righteousness. Third truth we see, honor your father and mother and obey them in the Lord. Children are made by God and for God. Kids are made to glorify God, to make much of God, to make God a big deal. Now to do that, you need a relationship with God. It's true of all of us. None of us can do that if we don't have a relationship with God. None of us can do that if we haven't repented from sin and self and turned and believed in the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. None of us can by our own nature because we've been separated by our sin, but Jesus came and he is our perfect substitute. Justification is a big word for some kids, and, and let's be honest, it's a big word for, for some adults too, right? Justification is what it means to be a Christian. Justification means that in and through Christ, it is just as if you never sinned and just as if you've always obeyed. God looks at us through the lens of Jesus. If we repent and believe, trusting in Jesus, he never sinned. He always obeyed. Becoming a Christian is being identified with Jesus. 
you're with Jesus, and because you're with Jesus, you're justified. Because you're with Jesus, you live a life making a big deal of Jesus. And one of the ways we do that is by obeying and honoring our parents. Honoring is, is our attitude. Obedience is our action. So, so you do what they say, but you do it with a sense of honor, respect, and love. It, it doesn't just please your parents or the Lord when you obey without honor. It should be a delightful obedience to your parents and the Lord. As parents, we need to insist on obedience and honor, and when they disobey, we need to tell them what we know as Christians. We only obey God out of the power of his spirit. We don't have the strength to obey God perfectly, but we are identified with Jesus, and Jesus gives us the spirit, and it is by the spirit that we obey. Fourth truth we see here in this section is that we are to make disciples of our children. How do we do this? There's so many ways. And there's so many things we shouldn't do. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. How do you make a child angry? Well, I've written down some ways that I have failed here and that grieve my heart, and there's so many other ways, but maybe you resonate with them. When you fail to take into account that they're kids, when I treat my 12-year-old son over here like he's 32. When you compare them to others, when discipline is inconsistent, when we fail to show affection and approval even at small accomplishments, when we fail to express love to them, when we discipline them for reasons other than willful disobedience and defiance like missing a basketball shot or a tackle, when we pressure them to pursue our goals instead of their own, in so many more ways, the result is to get angry or discouraged. And I hate that I've made my kids angry. I hate that I've made my sons discouraged in my own sin. May we not provoke them to anger and discourage them, but lead them to God, who is the source of all happiness in life. And then it says here in verse 4, the next thing we're to do is bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Instruction carries this idea of verbal teaching. Discipline involves more training, including punishment from consequences. Now this type of instruction and discipline we are to give is specific, isn't it? It says, of the Lord. So what does that mean? It means that we should be talking about Jesus and the Bible a whole lot. Like there's not any moment that's not a good moment to talk about Jesus in the Bible, period. So many of us believe the lies like, I just don't have time, we're so busy, where do I fit in the time to, to disciple my children and, and talk about Jesus? Any time is a good time. Waking them up in the morning, good time. Fixing their lunch, getting them dressed, good time. Walking them to school, driving them to school, good time. Picking them up from school, good time. Eating dinner, good time. Running errands, good time. Walk around the neighborhood, good time. Laying them down at bed at night, good time. Family gatherings, good time. It's always a good time to talk to our children about Jesus in the Bible. No matter what time it is. No matter what kind of day you've had. No matter what kind of day they've had. It's always a good time to talk about Jesus in the Bible. As parents, we want to get to the hearts of our kids. 
And we know that only God can do that through his spirit, but we, by God's grace, want to do everything we can to point to that truth over and over and over and over and over again so that God can work through us by the power of his spirit. Because external behavior modification may, may have some, some temporary change, but it won't bring true change. It won't bring eternal change. What changes the child, what changes us, what actually makes them and us delight in obedience and doing God's will is a new heart. And that only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to educate them with biblical truth. And I know that saying that overwhelms some of you. But you do not have to be a theologian to do this. If God has saved you from yourself and unto him, you have everything you need. Because you have the spirit of God within you. I would encourage you in so many ways just to get in your Bible more with your children. Preaching to myself right now too to get in the Bible more with my children. But there's also amazing resources, too. One of those that I would highly encourage anyone in here to get, Sally Lloyd-Jones is the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's what we give to any parent here who, who dedicates their child on Child Dedication Sunday. It is a wonderful storybook Bible for children that points to Jesus over and over and over again. I just want to read you how she begins this book. She says, Some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all and make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they're downright mean, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all the story. It's an adventure story of a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the ones he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. It is an amazing book. And what Sally, by God's grace, has done is she takes all these stories in the Bible, she, she unpacks them all, and then she just points to Jesus over and over and over and over again. And I can't tell you how much it blesses Lauren and I. Like, just because you're an adult, you are not too good for a children's storybook Bible because this will bless your socks off and your children's socks off and will make you more united in Christ. Lauren and I, we're convicted. We need to read it more to our children. We should be talking to our children about Jesus and the Bible all the time. May our goal not be for them to be a great athlete or a great student or a great dancer or a great musician. And it's not that any of those things are bad things, but may our aim be to teach them about the Great Commission, first and foremost. Teach them something that is great and goes for all eternity. Now, if you feel like you're insufficient still, welcome to the club. We're all presidents as parents in the insufficiency club. We are imperfect, we are weak, we are foolish, but God is good, and he is perfect, 
and uses broken vessels to redeem and to restore and to bring salvation over and over again. Parenting drives us to our knees, and when we are on our knees, we see that we are desperate for God's help. It's a strange gift from God to be driven to your knees through your weakness and insufficiency, but what a great place to be to cry out, I don't have everything figured out. I don't know what to do. I keep messing up. Help me. Please, Father, help me. There's no better place to be than depending and looking to God. The best way to lead our children is by following God. Our great hope as parents isn't in ourselves, but God's grace. Don't try to hide your weaknesses. That's not what we should be doing as Christians. We're not showing off our strength, but God's strength. Don't hide your weaknesses. Admit them and go to God for help. Paul teaches us that in our weakness, we find God's strength to be sufficient. The good news for parents is weak parents have a strong Savior. Praise Jesus that we do. God wants to be glorified in your parenting. As we depend on God as parents, he is glorified always. Whether you're on the mountaintop of parenting or in the valley of parenting, God strengthens us by his grace for his glory. Remember that your identity is found in Christ and not your parenting performance. Your identity is found in the work of another. That right now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go read Romans 8.1. That is true of everyone here. So whether you are a parent or not, whether you are a child or you're an adult now, whether you, you're a boss or an employee, if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you forever. Do not believe the lies of this world that there is because there is not. If you have turned from sin and self to Christ Jesus and believed and trusted in him, there is now no condemnation for you. So rest in that, delight in that, admit your weakness, realizing you have a strong Savior. Look to Jesus, who stepped down off of his throne and took on flesh and blood and lived and died and rose for us. It was abandoned by his Father at the cross so that you and I will never have to be abandoned by our Heavenly Father. What we believe about God intersects with our lives and informs us of how we should live. Whether last week as we talk about being a husband and wife, this week as parents and children, bosses and employees, everything we believe about God intersects with our lives and informs us how we should live. The application of the gospel of Jesus Christ is integrating our beliefs into action. Is God moving in and through you in these areas in your life? Are you looking to him? Are you crying out to him? Are you desperate for him? Are you under his authority by God's grace and do you see him in everything? Is your gaze fixed on him through the lenses of the cross of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, you are far better than we deserve. You're gracious and you're merciful. You're long-suffering, you're patient and kind. And we praise you that you pursue us. We don't deserve your love. We cannot earn your love. But you pour out your love upon us. And God, as we receive it, God, we just want to cry out that, Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your truth of your word and the love of Jesus Christ. We realize that, that we are weak 
and in our weakness, you are strong. God, help us to be real and transparent, authentic people before you, with ourselves and around others. Help us to realize that, that, that we are not superhuman. We are not perfect, but we are clay pots in your hands. And we find ourselves in complete surrender at the foot of the cross this morning, asking that you would just move in whatever ways you would in our lives, and we would trust you, believe you, and surrender to you, and point to you over and over and over again. We have been given a treasure in the gospel, and we want to make it known. And so we pray that you would use us as weak and broken vessels as we are and use us in our families for your glory. Use us in our workplaces for your glory. Use us in our communities for your glory and the glorification of Jesus Christ. We cannot do that without you. So God, we're praying that you would overwhelm our hearts and souls this morning with the love of Christ and use us in mighty ways. We love you. I'm praying I ask these things in Jesus' name.